This is Kona Bible Church. Thanks for listening. We pray that you will experience God's blessing as you consider Pastor Brian's latest message from his series, Wrestling with God, from the book of Genesis. So we're in Genesis, and today we're going to be in Genesis chapter 23. It's kind of a strange passage, but uh, what we've kind of talked about in Genesis is that we are wrestling with God, right? Uh, in fact, Jacob has his name changed from Jacob to Israel, which means wrestles with God or God contends with you. And I think they, like both of those things are meaningful. One is kind of from God's perspective. One is from man's perspective. And I, I love that, right? Like God's not going to just, you know, kind of you know, be so detached from you, what have we been testifying today? He knows us, and he's not a detached God. He's intimately with us, and he intends good for us. And I was thinking about that in the song we were singing, Holy, and I was kind of thinking, ah, holy, but you know, you keep repeating the word, right, as we love to do, as contemporary evangelicals. (laughs) Uh, But the reality is that's being repeated over and over and over in heaven, um, but as I was thinking about that, repetition sometimes is good because if, we, if it's not repeated, sometimes we don't even think about it, right? So here we are, think, I'm thinking about the word holy and going, okay, holy means, you know, it's not mundane, it's not, uh, it's somehow separate, it's got this consecrated purity aspect to it, and there's almost this sense of it's off limits, right? And, and yet then you have a God who is, is saying, I'm not off limits. Uh, both I am off limits and not off limits. Um, and and the, these kind of, these competing thoughts of, of a God who is so holy that he can't be around sin, and yet he sends his son to be with sinners. Uh, right, these ideas that have such tension involved in them um, were, were kind of what I was thinking uh, about that. And so, I think one of the things that we have to do is uh, occasionally, whether it's singing the songs that we sing or in Scripture, to, to do what we have noted in here, and that is to pause, question, and wonder about Scripture. And chapter 23, I think, is a, is a good illustration of a chapter that we need to pause, question, and wonder on. And the reality is we are going to be in this, in this kind of section here and to think about why is it that, that God picked this account that's being relayed in chapter 23. Why did he include it? Uh, Because as we read through it, we're going to kind of go, okay, on the surface, I think we can just be like, yeah, let's get on to chapter 24. But those are the moments, I think, that we we really need to kind of pay attention to and go, wait a minute, I'm I'm just going to do a little reflection, pause, question, wonder on chapter 23. So let's read it first, and then we we will make some observations. Sarah lived in 127 years. Now, you may need to wrestle with that. Uh, you know, I don't know if, you, if, if that's in your, if in your, one of the things that you need to wrestle with in Scripture. We have dates and ages that, that seem to be, you know, kind of longer than what we normally have. Uh, but that might be something that you have to wrestle with. Uh, if you're wrestling with that, stick around, wrestle with Abraham, because he lives till he's 175. Uh, and so these are things that you can continue to wrestle with. Then she died in Kiriath uh, Arba, that is Hebron. Better name choice, Hebron. In the land of Canaan, Abraham went to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Then Abraham got up from mourning his dead wife and said to the sons of Heth, 
I am a temporary settler among you. Grant me ownership of a burial site among you so that I may bury my dead. The sons of Heth answered Abraham, Listen, sir, you are a mighty prince among us. You may bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will refuse you his tomb to prevent you from burying your dead. Abraham got up and bowed down to the local people, the sons of Heth. Then he said to them, If you agree that I may bury my dead, then hear me out. Ask Ephron, the son of Zohar, if he will sell me the cave of Machpelah that belongs to him. It is at the end of his field. Let him sell it to me publicly for the full price, so that I may own it as a burial site. Now Ephron was sitting among the sons of Heth. Ephron the Hethite replied to Abraham in the hearing of the sons of Heth before all who entered the gate of his city. No, my lord, hear me out. I sell you both the field and the cave that is in it. In the presence of my people, I sell it to you. Bury your dead. Abraham bowed before the local people and said to Ephron in their hearing, Hear me, if you will. I pay to you the price of the field. Take it from me so that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, saying to him, Hear me, my lord. The land is worth 400 pieces of silver, but what is that between me and you? So bury your dead. So Abraham agreed to Ephron's price and weighed out for him the price that Ephron had quoted in the hearing of the sons of Heth, 400 pieces of silver according to the standard measurement at the time. So Abraham secured Ephron's field in Machpelah next to Mamre, including the field, the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field and all around its border as his property in the presence of the sons of Heth before all who entered the gate of Ephron's city. After this, Abraham buried his wife, Sarah, in the cave in the field of Machpelah next to Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. So Abraham secured the field and the cave that was in it as a burial site from the sons of Heth. Well, as we have kind of gone through this whole uh, situation here with um, with Genesis, uh, one of the things that we can look at, one of the themes that has been kind of popping up is this idea of creating a community of faith. Uh, we have been commissioned, and we go with a promise, and it's important to recognize that. Uh, okay, let's, let, this is where I want to go, right here. Okay. So, as we kind of sit there and we pause, question, and wonder, why is this account in there? We recognize that, as we have been, that Scripture is layered, right? So there is this aspect of going, well, we can learn from Abraham and his faith journey. There's something that we can learn here uh, from him. But then I also think that we have to remember that this book, Genesis, and the entire Torah was written for a faith community called Israel, uh, that's when it was kind of written. So 400 years after the time of Abraham, uh, Israel is coming out of Egypt, and they're kind of this new faith community that is being established. And God is using this faith community to further the promise that he gave Abraham. Uh, and that promise was to give land, descendants, and a blessing to all the peoples of the world. Uh, and we are a byproduct of that. But as scripture kind of continues to unfold, we recognize also there's another faith community that is being spoken to, and that is the church community. Uh, and so this story in here has relevance not just to tell uh, Abraham's story, 
but it has relevance for these two faith communities. And what I would like to do is I'd just kind of like to look through, pause, question, and wonder a little bit about what that relevance might be. Well, one of the things that you can see right from the get-go is if you know Abraham's journey, his father left Ur of Chaldea. It's kind of northeast of Israel. Um, probably, <laughs> ah, somebody's going to Google me and I'll be wrong. Uh, Modern-day Persia? That's big enough, because, right? I mean, is Persia even modern day? What's that, Iran? Old Persia? Um, so you're coming from out of there. So his father gets, and he's on his way to Canaan, right? The father, the whole family gathers, the whole family says, we're, we're out of here. Now, there's a whole story that's not being told. Like, why are they leaving Chaldea? I would like to know. Uh, and then they, they ultimately don't make it to Canaan, and they settle north of Canaan in a place called Haran. Now, there's a whole nother story uh, that is not told as well, but you get little glimpses because the oldest son dies, and his name is Haran. So likely, the name of the town was something different when they moved in, and they renamed it Haran out of respect or honor to this son who, who died, who is Lot's father, right? Now, that's a little bit of conjecture, but I think it's reasonable conjecture, but don't take that to the bank. So they stop there, but the, the word of the Lord comes to Abraham, and he says, no, 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 I don't want you to stop in Haran. I want you now to get your family and go to Canaan, go to the land that I'm going to promise you. Uh, in fact, he, he doesn't even say Canaan. He just says, go to the land that I'm going to show you. And so Abraham gets up and he just goes without even really a destination in mind. He goes and then we have this story unfolding. Now, if for the first time what we are sensing here in, in the story of Abraham is death. Death to the level that we're experiencing. And, and sometimes it takes death to kind of revisit the memories of your youth, right? Your own journey. Uh, in fact, uh, this, this month, uh, I, I got some cremains delivered to my office. Do you know what cremains are? Did you even know that was a word? I didn't even know that was a word. It's the cremated remains. Cremains. Uh, and so I had a box of cremains delivered to me from the mainland. Uh, it was a snowbird who used to, uh, uh, her and her husband used to come over here to the Lutheran church. And uh, the family, because of the pandemic, was unable to travel here to be able to disperse the cremains. And so they said, Pastor, uh, you, the, my father, uh, well, actually, it was a stepfather, he had some of his ashes dispersed here. Um, would you please do us the honor of dispersing the ashes of my mother, um, you know, in and around the Kona area? <laughs> How do you like that? I am a full-service pastor, Okay. So make note of that in your estate planning. <laughs> Pastor Brian will disperse remains. So uh, some of the, the husband's remains were dispersed on property, which I did, and then I went down to kind of where they stayed and, and dispersed the rest of those. So anyhow, uh, one of the things that a family would go through as you're kind of going through that whole, whole burial process is, well, where are the final remains going to go? Now, typically, you would go back to your family plot. <laughs> now, I don't even know if those exist anymore in our culture. Does anybody have a family plot? You have a family plot? Yeah. 
So, there, you know, and the family plot, what I mean by that is where there are generations of your ancestors at this location. So here, Sarah is dying. It would be the, he's not living in modern day culture where there's no, like, associate, like, we're so detached from everything, I think, from our ancestors in, in many ways. We're like, ah, just cremate the guy, <laughs> Right? Back then, they would have said, no, 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 there would have been a pull, there would have been a tug to take the remains back, okay? But Abraham does not go back. Now, this is, uh, I, this is very important to the story. And so I think one of the things that we can kind of pause, question, and wonder on is this idea of the calling that we have, Right? We, we saw that God gave a calling to Adam and Eve. Go into the chaos and bring order, purpose, and life. Well, they go into the chaos and corrupt the already chaotic existence of the world. And then as they are coming out of Eden, remember then God kind of begins to give these new commissions, right, to mankind of going in and saying, go into the uh, chaos, the corrupted chaos, and bring order, purpose, and life. And then he says the same thing to Abraham and to his family, but he adds a blessing and a promise with it. All of a sudden, this, this commission of mankind to be like God and to go in and be mini-gods in some respect, to, to be like him and to take order uh, and, and purpose and, and life everywhere that you go, um, and even into the corruption that has been given to all mankind, and there's kind of further uh, uh, elaboration as you go through the story. Well, one of the things is you never go backwards, okay? Uh, when God gives you a call, when he gives you a, a commission, it is to go forward. It is not to go backwards. In fact, God makes it impossible for Adam and Eve to go backwards, Right? Not only do we not know where, where the Garden of Eden is today, but remember what he did. He blocked the Garden of Eden by sending a, a, a cherub to be able to block uh, the entrance to the Garden of Eden. And he said, no, 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 you're not going backwards. And this is why I always, uh, I get a little, this is when I put on my little uh, personal uh, diatribe and stand on my soapbox and say, we're not going back to Eden, folks. Okay, that's not the goal, to go back to Eden. The goal is to go to the Garden of God in Revelation, okay? We're not trying to get back to the Garden of Eden. We're going forward. And so God blocks the path backwards, and, and now we be begin to see a couple of these repetitive instances where God's calling and commissioning is for people to go forward. So here, Abraham has a, a chance and every kind of motivation to go back, either to Chaldea or even to Haran, but no, what does he do? He goes, no, I've been called to go to the promised land. I am stepping in to the future of what you want me to do. I'm not going backwards. Now, this has, actually has pretty big importance to a new forming spiritual community of Egypt, of Israel. They are not to go back. When God sets them free from Egypt and sets them free from the slavery... Remember, some of the people are a little bit disgusted because they're wandering around in the, and they're like, oh, I can't stand this food. We at least had fish and stuff to eat back there. <laughs> okay, you guys are crazy. Go back into slavery? 
I mean, that's God's response. No, you're not going backwards. You're going forward. You leave behind the slavery. Think about the, the, as the church, this new community of faith that we have. We, this is the appeal Paul says over and over. Peter, John, all these apostles say, leave behind the old man and go forward in the new man. Why would you go back into the slavery of sin? Go forward. And so I think what we see here is, is this story of Abraham, you know, kind of saying, no, 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 I am not going backwards. I am going forward. It is not on the basis of just like some feel-good thing. It's on the basis of a call. Uh, all right, so I think that's one of the things. So for us as the church, we are not being called to go back to Israel. Okay, I know we, I know we love Israel, and we should. We need to pray for the peace of Israel. That's a good thing to do. But we are not supposed to be called to go back and somehow create a church empire in Israel. That's not what we're called to do. Nor are we called to do that in Rome or any other city like Louisville, Kentucky. Isn't that the home of the Southern Baptists? I don't know. I don't know. Well, I don't know where their home is. But no church group, no denomination should be like... Here is Shangri-La. Here is the New Jerusalem. Here is where we are going. No, no, no. What is our calling? Our calling is not to go backward to Israel. In fact, the very earliest church members had that problem. They were hanging out in Israel, right? They were awaiting the Spirit of the Lord to be poured out. But as soon as the Spirit came, what was their commission? Go into all the world. Don't hang out here in Israel. Go into all the world. Uh, and so th this, this commission, we are not to be going back into Israel. We are to be going into the world, all right? So the next thing I think that you see of, of what in this story is you see Abraham not afraid to invest in it, okay? Now, I think there's a whole other story that we're not privy to. It seems as if he's, he's being taken advantage of here by Ephron. Okay, so Ephron wants to, you know, he needs a, a cave. His wife is dead, Right? You only have so much time, right? Until, I mean, you got to get this body buried. So he's, he goes, okay, I got, the, I got my eye on a cave. And then Ephron's like, well, it's going to cost you the field too. Uh, and by the way, it's going to be 400 pieces of silver, which is probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 times the amount of what it would actually uh, be. And so there's, again, don't take that necessarily to the bank, but that could be an, a, an untold part of the story of going, Oh, man, he's getting, but he doesn't care because his investment is in this promise of this land. Now, think about the faith that Abraham would have had to be able to wrestle through purchasing land, okay? He is already aware of the promise. Part of the promise that has unfolded is this idea that his descendants would go into slavery in another country for 400 years. Now, he's now taking 400 pieces of silver and going, yes, I will invest in the land here that my descendants will not even be a part of for at least 400 years. So this is the, the fascinating thing about Abraham because we read through his story and I, I think we need to put ourselves a little bit in his sandals, right, so that we can appreciate the journey because he's not like some super man of faith, right? He's us. 
He's you and he's I. And, and the entire story is geared so that we follow him and become children of Abraham. Uh, here's what I want to do. I want to read Hebrews chapter 11. I'm going to read two different passages. It says this, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place he would later receive as an inheritance, and he went out with an, without understanding where he was going. By faith he lived as a foreigner in the promised land as though it were a foreign country, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob. You see, he lives till he's 175 years old. Uh, Isaac was born when he was 100. And it takes uh, Isaac, he's, Isaac is 60 when he has Jacob. So Abraham actually gets to know Jacob. We don't ever read that in the story except for right here, where Jacob is about 15 years old when Abraham dies. So uh, we have this, this, that's kind of a neat little thing, right? Living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, who were fellow heirs of the same promise, for he was looking forward to the city with firm foundations, whose architect and builder is God. goes on to say this in verse 13. These all died in faith without receiving things, the things promised, but they saw them in the distance and welcomed them and acknowledged that they were strangers and foreigners on the earth. For those who speak in such a way make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. Excuse me. In fact, if they had been thinking of the land that they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. I think that's probably an ambiguous reference to chapter 23 here. Uh, but as it is, uh, they aspire to a better land that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. So as we see what's going on here uh, in, in this, this idea, he's investing into the land, right? He's paying an exorbitant price, and the man has incredible faith, which he's already demonstrated. He's believed in a God who is able to raise the dead back to life. How do we know that? Romans 4 says that. How do we know that? Because he believed that his dead wife's, or his, his living wife's dead womb could birth a descendant, and even he himself is old. And then he, he has this belief in the resurrection that even were he to have sacrificed Isaac, that Isaac would have come back to life. He believes in this resurrection so much, but there's another element of the promise, and that is the land. So we've seen him demonstrate it on this, the descendant portion of the promise. Now he's showing great faith in the land portion but for Abraham, it's never just about the physical, right? And this is so beautiful because Jesus is constantly coming and talking to his disciples and saying, move beyond the physical, folks. The physical is kind of easy for me to do. It's the spiritual that I want you to really be able to begin to see how I impact that. Now think about that for a moment. The, the descendants... Abraham never got to see or experience the fulfillment of these promises. I mean, think about it. He was 100 before he actually even had one descendant that counted according to the promise. And now, all of a sudden, th think about the land. He's been a foreigner and a stranger in the land until this moment when he's 138 years old and he goes to bury uh, Sarah. Yeah, and, and, and now he's saying, okay, I'm going to, even though I'm not going to be able to live, to be able to see my descendants own the land, I believe that God can do it. 
Now, that's pretty awesome to be able to hear that promise and go, okay, well, on what basis would you believe that? Well, he's already given me a child from a woman who should never have been able to give birth to a child and a man who's also old, right? I have this great confidence in what he's able to do. And so because on the basis of that great confidence, I'm going to invest in the land. Now, I think this is important for the two faith communities that follow, right? So here you have Israel uh, coming out of Egypt and, and going into the promised land. Now, are they supposed to just, you know, kind of sing uh, Kumbaya, my Lord, for the rest of their lives? No, they're supposed to go into the land and do what? They're supposed to tend the land, just like Adam and Eve were given a commission to be, to be gardeners, <laughs> Right? Here, Israel is being given this charge of going in and caring for the land because God wants all the nations to be able to experience the fruitfulness of the land in Old Testament history and in Israel's commissioning is so important because it is that fruitfulness that other nations will look at and go, oh, they must be doing something right. Right? Other nations are going to look at Israel and go, who is their God and what is he all about uh, and why are they so blessed that the land would produce so much? Uh, I want to get to know that God. So they were supposed to be drawn in to the worship of God because why? Because the Israelites were to be gardeners. It's one of the things that they were supposed to do, to care for the land, to, to build vineyards. And to make great wine. Really, only one amen. <laughs> to build vineyards and make great wine. Wow, you guys have not had good wine, apparently. I mean, I buy the $10 stuff at Costco, and I think that's fantastic. So this is, this is part of what they were to be. They were to draw other nations so that Part of the promise, all the nations of the earth would be blessed through them. That was designed to be coming in to Israel. And, and so this is part of their commission. And so what do you have to do in order to be a gardener? I mean, you've got to go into the chaos. And you have got to bring order and purpose to the chaos so that it may produce what? Life. That's what you have to do. Does that sound familiar? That's exactly what Adam and Eve were called to do. It is what uh, Abraham is called to do. It's what Israel is called to do. And, and this story is here, I think, for this setting the table of going, oh, you know what? It, you know, we may not be able to experience the fullness of this, but we are to invest in it in the short term. Yes, Abraham had a very healthy recognition of seeing beyond the physical and recognizing, wait a minute, even the land, you know, it's not really the ultimate destination. No, I'm waiting for the city that's built uh, by God. That's the ultimate destination. But until I get that, what I can do is I can administrate with purpose and order and life to the land that he has given me. And I think God does that because remember what he how he talks about our future? He says, oh, you will be judges over angels, that there's going to be a place in his kingdom for us to have done well in this life and then to get appointed to positions in the next life. 
And, and I think part of this life is, is that whole parable of the talents. God gives us talents where we're supposed to go and to, to make something of it. And part of that is for us to go into the chaos and bring order and purpose and bring life everywhere. How, how are you doing it? So I think he's, he's called Israel to do that. And then the second faith community, I think this story is in there for the second faith community because I think he wants the second faith community, the church, to do that as well. Go into all the world, right? Uh, and, and teach people, and baptize people, all that I have commanded. And where do you do that? Well, we're going to establish these little congregations, these little synagogues all around the world and what I want you to do is I want you, your faith communities, to assemble in my name, to congregate in my name, and I want you to bring order and purpose to the chaos of the world. Because you see, now in the New Testament, it's not just about drawing people in like it was in the Old Testament. It is about us going out, but it is with the same commission and so what are we to be supposed to do when we go out into the chaos? We're supposed to invest in it, folks. There's nothing wrong with investing in property. There's nothing wrong with investing in, in a building. So, I mean, think about the blessing that this building has been in the last, well, four or five years for Kona Bible Church, but for the last two years for Shore Break and then the West Hawaii Church of the Sovereign Lord. I mean, this building itself has been a, a bit of a, a sanctuary, a, a, a bit of a, a, a place of refuge, right? For, for the community of faith to be able to go, we have a spot. Though we have been kicked out by the world from the schools, we have a place of refuge right here. And would that have existed if a former generation would not have invested into it? And think about the investment that they did. It wasn't just, well... I mean, how did Kona Bible Church invest in the, in the early days? Uh, here's what we got. We got money to pop up some tents. And uh, we got two bucks a chair for these plastic chairs. I mean, you remember our rough beginnings? Well, that's what we had. We invested. We, we had what we had, and we invested in it. But now, that was such kind of a temporary... I mean, have you seen those tents after a couple of years of use? We were only using them one day a week. And those things, man, oof. The metal started breaking. I took a few of those back to Costco. Always buy from Costco. The metal shouldn't break, okay? Metal shouldn't break. I feel justified in my return, although they did give me a look because they were pretty well-worn um, when I took them back. But I didn't take them all back. I only took the ones that broke. But those things, they get frayed, right? Like the temporary nature of dwelling... No, and, and now here, like, uh, we've been here five years. You know the amount of work that Bob and others have put in to be able to keep this, to invest their time, their talents, and their ties to be able to make this a place of refuge? That's what it takes. And it is living out part of our calling. Now, folks, I hate to break this to you, but they have done a great job. The former generations have done a great job going into the chaos of these two acres and bring you order, purpose, and life. But guess what? There's three more acres. And if that three acres do not have order and purpose and life to it, you will see what happened on Queen K two weeks ago. A fire that just rages up and burns because 
people have not lived out their calling to bring order, purpose to the chaos uh, uh, that exists. Now, believe it or not, it actually happened here five years ago. You can go online and you can Google. You can see our neighbor standing on his lanai with the little garden hose shooting down the fire that was raging up this whole property right here and was very fortunate not to burn down the houses in this development. And why? Because God's people did not invest in the land. Right? And, and when I think about that, I think of that, that song that, that maybe God's people are, are sometimes too heavenly-minded to be any earthly good. Right? That's Johnny Cash. Johnny Cash sings that. And I think sometimes we go, oh, no, we just have to be about the business of the kingdom. We've got to be out pro pro proclaiming the gospel, evangelizing. Yes, that's all well and good. Let's do that. But let's not miss our calling also as the people of God to go into the world and to be able to invest in the things that God has given us in order to bring order, purpose, and life. So what, what is it going to take? I mean, what do you, maybe not all of us have money to be able to do that. Okay. You know what you can do? I, I, here's what I'm going to do. I'm bringing my son down here, and we are going to start going in. We've already done it. Bob and I have already gone in. We've created a path around there, okay? Uh, and, and we have started to go in. You've seen the progress over the five years of, of moving away. You remember when we first got here? Like the weeds were overtaking this building. But we have now pushed away. We're going in. We're bringing order and, and purpose to the land. Now, there's probably multiple stages to bring you order and purpose. The first thing we want to do is we want to make a, a you know, a laser tag area. Okay? It's an easy way to bring order and purpose to the land, right? I mean, run around and shoot people, right? Couldn't be any more godly than that, right? But that's something. If we go in, so we're going to just start coming down here, and we're going to start just pushing in one inch, one foot, one yard at a time in order to bring order and purpose to the land. Bob and Calvin, I think, are also committed to doing it. Because we recognize that this calling on our lives is, is more than just kumbaya, but that he's actually invited us to get into creation and to bring order and purpose to it. And so why would we wait till another fire comes up and threatens? You know, the, the fire department said, you got to do it. It's, your, it's essentially your moral obligation to have a fire break here. And if you don't do it, you're not being a good neighbor. Really? God's people not being good neighbors? Now, I shared this vision right here this week with a snowbird. And the snowbird whipped out his checkbook and wrote a $10,000 check because he believed in the mission. He believes in the vision. Vision. Folks, that's what I'm talking about. Not everybody has the, the ties like that. They're not even here. They don't have the time to be able to be here. I wish they were because the boy, man, he's, a, he's, a, he's an earth mover back in Montana. He builds roads. We could use that talent right here. But he's not even here. But what he had, he said, oh, what I can contribute, I can contribute my money. Maybe you don't have the money, but you do have time and you do have, well, <laughs> maybe you don't have any talent, but it doesn't take much talent to be able to pull some weeds. But we have an obligation because we have been called to go into the world and to bring order, purpose, 
and then see the life. It's not just relational, right, that we are called to. It is this idea of God using all this physical stuff to do spiritual things. We miss that when we go to the Old Testament. We start reading about these sacrifices, and we're like, oh my goodness, that's a lot of bulls and lambs, and think about the blood. You know who's eating all that stuff? The people of God. He's using the physical world, the creation. Do you know how much, how much land it would have taken to be able to support the amount of sacrifices that are happening in Jerusalem? Somebody had to do that. You imagine, think about as you read through the kings and the daily provision of the king's courts and the amount of wheat, the amount of barley, the amount of wine that had to be provided for the king's courts, who's going to do that? Folks, the spiritual world is always involved in the physical world. Now, when I come on Wednesdays, here's who I see. I see an 86-year-old woman tending that row of bushes right out there every week. I see that same woman checking these bushes over here. I see another 70-something-year-old man out there mowing the grass. Why? Because he has bought in. They have bought in to understanding that the kingdom of God is not just singing kumbaya. It is involved in this whole idea of holding the tension between the physical and the spiritual together because that's when true spirituality happens. It happens right here in our bodies. You recognize that, right? Like death is an enemy because it unnaturally cleaves the body from the soul or the immaterial. And what is the the conquering of death when Jesus says, I conquered? It's because he's raised us back to life so that we can experience the fullness of the physical body and the spiritual that will be uncorruptible, incorruptible for all of eternity. That's our destiny. So as much as I love singing Kumbaya, and I'll sing it till the cows come home, I'm going to sing it with the cows coming home. You see what I'm saying? That we do it together. So how is it that you have been created? Because if you're in a, in a community of faith like a church, you have been called to bring order and purpose to the chaos. You, you've been called. Not only have you been called and commissioned to do it, you've also been supernaturally empowered to do it. The Holy Spirit is dwelling inside of you, empowering you to bring life and order and purpose to the chaos. So, how are we doing it? This is the other thing that I think we can see. Well, this is the balance. When we do this, we don't go into this and, and somehow have the, the tension flipped because that's what we do as humans, right? Like, okay, I'm, I'm coming down. I'm going to pull some weeds. I'm going to go into that, right? And, and now I feel good. I've done my social duty, my calling. No, 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 no. We don't want to get lost in the mission. And this is the opposite of the quote. We don't want to be so earthly-minded that we're no heavenly good. Right? We need both and. We need to be earthly and heavenly-minded because the reality is they're the same. 
Now, I don't mean that heaven somehow exists here on earth. Please don't, you know, like jump on me for bad theology about that. But what I mean is that the spiritual and the physical are together. And that if we really want to be heavenly minded, we would be earthly minded. So that when we see something that needs to be recycled, that we recycle. Can you believe that Hawaii does not have recycling? To the, I mean, it's crazy to me. It would seem that somebody would be designed by God to bring order and purpose out of the chaos of Hawaii and figure that out. What are you telling me, that the mainland people are smarter than us? I mean, we're all from the mainland. We can't figure this out, how to figure, produce some recycling. But it's not for the purpose of elevating creation over God and going, oh, we're so wonderful, we're so progressive because we care for the earth. No, it's not about that. It's we are so spiritual that we care for the earth. Right? God is going to empower us to be able to solve these problems. That's what we're, we're called to do. That's the corrupted chaos that we have been called to go into. What is your place? But as you do it, go into it. Don't ever put the given above the giver. That's the tension. You'll always have to depend on the giver. And this is what, this is what he does. This is what Abraham does. He doesn't look at the, at the cave and go, ah, yes, I've got land now. I'm a landowner. No, he goes, no, I trust the God who told me that my descendants are going to be in slavery for 400 years. I trust that he will bring us back and do what he promised to do. And so in the meantime, what I'm going to do is I'm going to invest in it, but I'm not putting it. I'm not elevating it above the giver. And if you look at Israel's history, this is one of their problems, is that they took what was given and forgot about the giver. And folks, my calling to you is, let's think about what has been given to us. And don't ever put what has been given to you above the giver. Now, I'm saying that to an American audience who has been given an awful lot. And I think in some respects, the American evangelical audience has forgotten about the one who has given it. And I'm going to add Canadian evangelical as well. Father, this is my prayer. I, I see it here in, in, in your scriptures, Father, that you just, you call us, you've commissioned us. And so I, I'm grateful for that calling. I'm grateful that we get a chance to live it out. We got three little acres here. But I, I think if we go in with the right intent, with the right motive, that we can be a reflection to the rest of the community. And, and somehow, I think the rest of the, if we tend it well, and we bring life to that land. I think the rest of the community, it, I mean, we, we even say it in our Hawaiian state motto, the life of the land is perpetuated in righteousness. And I think this, this community is longing for people to model it. And why not the church? We're talking about righteousness. We should be the ones modeling it. And I think when we model it, it won't be just that there's fruitful trees on the land. It'll be fruitful people among fruitful trees in the land. And the community is going to look at it and go, man, who is this God that you are serving that allows so much life to come? Father, I, I feel as if we step into it,
that you will be faithful. As you were faithful to Abraham, as you were faithful to Israel, you will be faithful to the church. Father, keep us safe. Will you provide and protect us as we go in to the corrupted chaos and do what you have called us to do? We ask these things in Jesus' name and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.